This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined from Fukutane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going with you? It's going very well indeed. What's the plan for the weekend? Um, I don't really know, actually. A lot of rest, relaxation. Um, we've now, uh, we change, of course, to uh, daylight savings ending, so... Uh, a weekend of adjusting to losing an hour at the end of the day, and I imagine lots of bike riding. And writing a book chapter. Oh, yes, I've got to write a book chapter. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That thing. (laughs) Decolonisation and Rural Health. Yes, and that's actually a really important book chapter to write, and I'm excited about it. And we need to make progress on it. Yes, we do. And who are we introducing today? It is my absolute great pleasure to introduce Dr. Charlie Gardner. He's the Associate Senior Lecturer at Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology. He's a conservationist and an activist, and I found him on Twitter, and he just blew my mind. So immediately he got an email saying, you've blown my mind. Charlie, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much for joining us very early in the morning in the UK. It's such an honour. Thank you. Um, I was so pleased to receive your email. It's it's an amazing thing um, about our internet age that we can just, you know, wake up in the morning with a thought, share it with the world, and, and, and then you inspire someone in New Zealand. What a wonderful thing. Where are you, Charlie? So I'm in Norfolk on the east coast of the UK. We're entering our spring, so I've just had a lovely weekend in the garden, um, weeding and enjoying the birdsong. And this morning, the weather's just turned slightly back to something more normal and grey and drizzly, so I'm happy to be back at my desk again this morning. Now, we've been asking people how their bubble life was. And of course, you haven't necessarily had a bubble life, but how's the pandemic been for you? To be honest, um, it's not been so bad. So I'm I'm in a position of real privilege um, in that lots of my work was quite easy to adjust to online. I I don't have children. So, um, you know, one huge area of responsibility that that I don't have and it meant I was very quiet and also I live I live in a rural area with access to the countryside and I have a nice garden um to be honest and I I realized my experience probably wasn't that similar to, to to many people but I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed the slowdown in the pace of life I enjoyed having time to myself and to concentrate on my wife and my garden um 
and it was a time for it was a time for reflection, a time to 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 sit down and enjoy the little things. And um, yeah, it was okay. Thank you. And did you manage to work through it? I presume you're working from home. Yeah, so I um, at the time I I was largely doing um, lecturing at university, and we managed to switch that online very very quickly. So yeah, a couple of of weeks rough transition and and some really busy times adjusting. I think it was possibly more difficult for the students than it was for us as lecturing staff. Um, and of course, I mean it 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 wasn't all plain sailing because the the single thing I love most about lecturing is meeting all these wonderful young <laughs> people and meeting them face to face so i really missed that um despite my um reclusive tendencies i actually missed um human contact um but that was good too because you know i in in our hurly burly world beforehand i, I sort of persuaded myself that i I was quite withdrawn from that world and I didn't need human contact that much, but being deprived of it reminded me how important it is. Um, so yes, my university work, I adjusted quite easily. It was difficult for, in terms of our activism, we found um, levels of energy around the country sort of um, dipped quite quite heavily during the worst of the pandemic. One of the great things about climate activism is 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 the community that um that comes with it. You know, you meet fantastic people and, and meeting online is a big part of, of of the richness of that. A big part of sorry, meeting in person is a big is a big part of what I get out of it. So so moving online was what a was a bit of a transition. But luckily um Luckily, you know, it, in climate activism circles, we were already organizing via Zoom. We were already, um, you know, quite advanced in the online world before the pandemic hit. So, so we were um, not hit too badly. So many things in there to talk about. Let's go for let's go for the teaching first. Are you back? Are you back teaching face to face yet? Um, I actually left my um, my role as a lecturer last year for for accommodation of, of, of professional and, and personal reasons. Um, so I now I maintain my association with the university, but I'm not actually in a paid role. Um, rather than teaching on formal courses at the university, I have been doing a lot more speaking for various groups um, about the climate crisis and about climate activism. So I um, I seem to be doing just as much lecturing, actually, but to different groups and in diff to different places all the time. Um, this afternoon, I will be speaking to a group at Stockholm University, and you know this is this is a wonderful thing about our our rapid um, transition in in how we communicate globally. Um, is you know, thanks to the pandemic, is it's now just you know a completely normal thing for me to to be doing a talk in New Zealand in the morning and Sweden in the afternoon without having to leave my room. How wonderful is that? So what led to that decision about going full-time in, in climate activism? So an, an, a number of reasons. I Partially, it's about how I feel I can best make an impact as an individual and as a scientist. I've always felt that my work as a conservationist, whilst hugely important, 
wasn't quite sufficient because with wildlife conservation, essentially we're addressing the symptoms of the destruction of the natural world. We're not really addressing the drivers. We're not getting to the root causes. And I've always wanted to do something more about that. Then when I started lecturing in 2016, I was asked to teach an undergraduate course about the climate crisis and what this meant for, for biodiversity, for the world's wildlife. So I'd always been aware of climate change, you know, since when I was six years old, I had nightmares about climate change. You, you know, you know I, I, I knew about it, but I'd always I think I'd always tried to ignore it. I tried to bury my head in the sand because it was just too big and the implications of it were just too big. If I thought about it fully and, and fully allowed myself to, 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 you know, contemplate the implications, it would mean having to change everything. And I was I was too scared to do that. So in 2016, I started teaching this course and obviously I was obliged to, you know, to, to fully realise just how big the implications were. But it also made me think about my own role in addressing this as, as a scientist. And it just felt wrong that I should be going into, walking into the lecture theatre telling my students, you know, young people in their early 20s, about just how devastating what's coming around the corner is going to be, and then just walking out again at the end of the lecture <laughs> and doing nothing till next week. And it just felt wrong. So when um, Extinction Rebellion, the grassroots um, climate justice movement, was sort of came into the limelight in, in the UK in 2018, I just felt that this was what I'd always been waiting for. Finally, it was an effective looking group that was um, yeah, addressing the root causes of both the climate crisis and the environmental crisis. And finally, what I'd always been waiting for had happened. Members of the public were taking to the streets. The members of the public yeah, were visibly cared as much about the natural world as, as I did. So, so I threw myself headlong into that. And so for the last three years, I've been transitioning my career away from being a conservation scientist and teaching. And I've been moving in, in research terms. I now focus more on um how we get out of this crisis. And I write specifically about the role of scientists and activists in um, social justice movements. And I've been moving away from teaching to other broader forms of, of communication. So I, I want to write, basically, I want to write popular science books about conservation and, and the climate crisis. I feel I feel my research was important, but with my, re my research, you know, I, I spend all this time writing papers. And they'd only be read by other conservation scientists. And yet I feel, you know, a big chunk of the public has a huge appetite for hearing about the natural world, hearing what we, you know, the tools we have at our disposal to to save it. We, we see this appetite in David Attenborough films. We see this appetite in donations to wildlife charities. But we I don't think we're really sort of catering for this appetite that, you know, there, there is no popular science book, an accessible popular book about the whole conservation movement. So that's what I'm, I'm working on. So over the last few years, um, I've moved away from my academic career and more towards communication and activism. This has been 
so I've talked about you know, my personal reasons for doing so. That's it's not the the only reason. There are also the higher education sector in the UK is in difficult times. Um, we're, we're struggling financially, and there are issues with um, how early career staff are are being treated. Um, there is increased. Um, it's harder and harder to get a permanent role. I I worked for five years as a university lecturer on short term contracts. Every year at the end of it, I had the stress of wondering whether my contact contract is being renewed. So I I, I walked away because um, the I, I don't know that it's it's a difficult sector to work in. It, it's emotionally very challenging and it didn't fit well for me at the time. And because I have other pursuits, other dreams to follow my dreams as a writer and, and you know, also activism is very, very urgent now. It, I also found it difficult to prioritise the day to day um, of, you, you know, sometimes futile feeling administration in the university when we're in a planetary emergency. There are more important things. Let's take a break from the planetary emergency, though, and play a song. Let's have Maccabee get conscious. Why this one? So I find this a very uplifting song. It's all about the impact that we can have as individuals um, if we are are conscious if we're caring um and there's just one line in it i mean i mean i love it it, it it's brilliant it's got this brilliantly sort of outdated 80s funky vibe to it but he's as, as well as the tune he's a fantastic lyricist and there's this one line in it that has struck me ever since i first heard it um you know 25 years ago which i think is just such an important line for us all to remember as individuals um you know operating in an unjust world and individuals trying to make our little bit of difference we do sometimes feel despondent. We do sometimes feel that we're having no impact. But as Maccabee says, I might not change the world with my views, but I might just light a fuse. And I find that very inspiring. Greetings. I'm Maccabee. It's time to get conscious. Conscious, conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody, it's conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time. Well, I'm Maccabee, and I'm an MC. I talk the truth and I talk reality. Conscious lyrics are my speciality, and I do it to the best of my ability. Lyrics to shock you like electricity. Lyrics of peace and love and humanity. Lyrics of freedom, pride and equality. Lyrics of what is going on in a society. In my style, check the vibe, check the music, check the groove. Talking facts, talking life, like a reader of the news. Tell a joke, make you laugh, make the people feel amused. It's a talent God has given me that I cannot abuse. What I do is what I say, and what I say is what I choose. Lyrics from my dreadlocks down to my shoes. I might not change the world with my views, but I might just light a fuse. Be doo be doo be down boy, dee be bang boo be doo boy. Be dee be doo be down boy, say we gotta do it in a conscious way. Be dee be doo be down boy, dee be dee be bang boo be doo boy. Be dee be doo be down boy, dee be dee be bang boo be down. Conscious, conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody, it's conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. 
conscious time, I get conscious time, conscious time. Now it's the 90s, we finish with the 80s. Pull up your socks and do up your laces. Already we have seen a lot of changes in a lot of very different places. Different people of different races, they are all turning over new pages. I hope it's one of those phases when people give God thanks and praises. In Europe, they couldn't take it no more. The politicians so rich and the people so poor. So the people got together and showed them the score. <laughs> politicians had to open the door. The wall came down, down to the ground. The people were letting off a freedom sound. People all over are uniting, getting together and beating the system. Independence for Namibia. Freedom for Mr. Mandela. Gorbachev and Perestroika. Consciousness is taking over. Let's make it better for the future. Make a world where we all can prosper. I don't want to keep looking over my shoulder. It would be good if we could trust one another. Be do be do be down boy. Do be do be dum bang boo be dum boy. Be do be do be down boy. Say we gotta do it in a conscious way. Aye. Be do be do be down boy. Do be do be dum bang do be dum boy. Be do be do be down boy. Do be do be dum bang do be down. Conscious, conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious. Conscious, come everybody get conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time, I get conscious time. Conscious time, come and say, come everybody, it's conscious time. Looking at yourself and tell me where you find me. Say, looking at your heart, me say, looking at your mind, me say, look what they go on and look for the sign car. Now at the 90s, not the 89, certain things they used to do, you have to left behind me. Say, get up to the and I want like you're blind Come want you know that this a conscious time Car mean a mean and kind a kind and Teeth a teeth and crime a crime Miss a love in your heart you feel make that shine And I feel the sake of the whole of mankind It's conscious time, conscious time I get conscious time, conscious time I get conscious time, conscious time I get conscious time, conscious time Charlie, you teased us there With the role of scientists in social justice movements What is the role of scientists in social justice movements? Well, you, you know, I, I used the term planetary emergency before, and it really is. We have, you know, everywhere we look, we see all these worsening crises, not just climate change, not just the destruction of the planet, but, you know, systematic racism, worsening inequality, global health problems. Um, you know, we are in a planet in crisis. Now, scientists, academics, um, we do what we do because we want to make the world a better place, right? And we've always felt that the problem is we just we just don't know enough. If we want to make the world a better place, we have to understand things. Therefore, we need new knowledge. So we get into research. And of course, research is hugely important and has contributed so much to our world. But the thing is, our our assumptions about how new knowledge makes the world better are a bit naive because we think, right, so we will generate the information and then we'll give that information to our leaders and they will use it to make good decisions. They'll make wise decisions that benefit everybody. The climate crisis is a really good example of how that's not true. We have had the information um, for 40 years. The go our governments have had that information for 40 years, but they have chosen not to listen to the science. They have chosen to act in the interests of fossil fuel industries instead. And, you know, this is all very well documented and it's easy to understand why they would do so. Fossil fuel industries spend a lot, a lot of money in influencing political decision making. Um, and so... 
And so we end up with this situation where the world is being run by, you know, and for special interests and against the interests of everybody. And it made me realize that actually this isn't about information. It's about power and influence. And if that's the case, then I need to rethink how I hope to achieve influence as a scientist. I thought my job was to write a scientific paper and then you know, the powers that be that will read that and act on it, but they don't, they ignore it. So that means I, I need and we need to become more powerful, more influential. Um, and for me, that means becoming involved in grassroots civil disobedience movements. Now, civil disobedience is a very powerful way to bring about rapid social change. You know, um, LGBTQ plus rights were um, in industrialized countries were gained by civil disobedience campaigns, the gay rights campaigns of the 80s. Votes for women, civil rights for people of color, these were won through civil disobedience, people taking to the streets en masse. And we're now seeing um, a flowering of civil disobedience again over the last few years for our planet. Um, and this is hugely important. And I think it has been really successful up to a point. So, you know, it's completely changed the conversation. Everybody is talking about climate change now. They weren't three years ago. And that's because of Greta Thunberg and it's because of Extinction Rebellion. Now, um, it's all very well having young people and members of the public going out into the streets to, to resist this system that's killing everything and to demand the rapid change we need. And lots of scientists have endorsed those. We've had 12,000 scientists signed a letter endorsing the youth strike saying the kids are doing the right thing. It's right that they're skipping school. And that's great that, that scientists endorse this, but I think scientists have to do more. I think we have to be not just supporting and joining these movements, but leading them because um, for a couple of reasons. One, because we have, you know, we have knowledge and that to me, just gives us a moral obligation to act on our knowledge, to try to do something about it. But also, we have power because we are some of the most um, respected people in society. And that means we have a voice. People want to listen to us. And, and so I just feel we have an obligation to, to use that um, to try and bring about the changes we need. And I think it's particularly important because scientists have been very, very vocal in telling us what an emergency it is. And that means we, we have to act like it. If you don't act like it's an emergency, then why should people believe you? If I was to tell you now that I can smell smoke coming from downstairs and I think my house is on fire and yet I was to carry on with this podcast recording, of course you wouldn't believe me because my actions don't match my words. So, and, and you know, I worry that there are people out there subconsciously thinking, well, if it was that bad, the scientists would be out on the streets. Um, but they're not, so it must be all right. So, so I act with a group called Scientist Rebellion um, in November at COP26, so the, the 26th um, international um, round of, of climate negotiations, we um, 
a group of us from from all over Europe, we blocked a bridge in Glasgow just across the town from the conference centre. We had chains around our necks so we couldn't get dragged off by the police. And 21 of us were arrested, of which 18 scientists. And this was the first mass arrest of scientists for um, over the climate crisis. And we did this. I took part in this action because... You know, it feels like I've spent my whole life trying to warn anyone that would listen about how dangerous what we're doing to the planet is. And nobody has been listening. And I just don't know any other way to show how deadly serious this is than to um, to, to, to risk arrest. And and, and, and it, you know, it it was a powerful action. It's not something you see every day, 20 scientists getting arrested together. Um, and as a result of that, we got really good press coverage. We, we, we got um, broadsheet um, and TV coverage around the world. Um, and we're now currently mobilising for our next action, which will start next week. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, ko I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and what's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together, proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and making things. Thank you. Now I know that for all of us over the last two years, we've had so many struggles, so many challenges, so many changes, so many shifts and trends and so many awakenings, new ways of being doing. And we've had to negotiate and navigate so many obstacles in order to get through together. And we have, I think we've done incredibly well. And I hope that you and for all of us, we can feel really, really proud and feel very accomplished and we feel very happy with how things have gone. I know for myself that I'm just overjoyed to be able to return to working with beautiful, beautiful rangatahi, our young people and people of all ages, in fact. And I've got my first school visit today, which I'm so happy about. I'm just in the process of picking up a new volunteer who is coming with me, which is wonderful. And to be able to return to that work and return to schools and something that used to be my everyday life, but of course for the last two years has really fluctuated in terms of when I've been able to, to do these things. It's just such a joy and I feel so grateful. So I hope that for you some of these things are coming back for you too and you're really able to relish and enjoy these wonderful parts of your life that may have been long established as they have been for me that you really love there's also of course new ways that we have to do things so in visiting these schools in the past we would be playing lots of games and holding hands and dressing up and uh, of course we'll have to do those things a bit differently now because of social distancing however we can still evoke that sense of playfulness and joy and celebration and connection <clears throat> in other ways so I'm looking forward to that experience today and just how that comes about so I really hope for you in this time you're finding new strategy new ways of doing things that you have done before to keep everyone safe and yourself safe and again that you can have that sense of real accomplishment 
that this can be a creative process. I know for myself that a huge part of my identity and sense of self is connected to my work with children. And in that time of not being able to do that, other parts of myself had to come forward for me to connect with. And so today is really like a reunion for me with that part of myself. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, very happy reunion that I'm able to be having. So I hope for you this is happening too. You're meeting those parts of yourself again. And it's really positive. It's, it's a celebration for you. And I really hope that in this time, that part of yourself has been learning and thinking new ways of doing being. And now can share all of those with you. And we're lucky that our consciousness allows us to conceptualize things in so many different ways. And our consciousness loves us. Our consciousness is here to serve us and, and as a tool for us. We're so lucky. And I think even when parts of us are not directly in communication, they are working away, they are creating and visioning. And so in this reunion, there's so much to share, so many gifts await us. And again, a huge thank you to Sam and the whole Blowing Bubbles team and all of you for having me. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Charlie Gardner. Charlie, increasingly people are gaining their knowledge or their kind of sense of truth or reality from non-traditional places like social media, for example. And yet education, as we see it and as we engage in it, doesn't operate in those spaces yet. And um, so it, I feel like it limits the opportunity for the elements of critical thinking to be present, for people to be able to actually make um, real critical understanding of the reality of their lives. And I wonder how, how do we bring education into that space, do you think? Because you're doing it, obviously, you're actually doing it. Um, I'm glad to hear you, you think so, so <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, I think you touched on it there. You talked about critical thinking, and I think this is hugely important. Um, it's something we take for granted, but we don't actually invest in making sure everybody has it. So we, we've moved from a world where information was sort of controlled, if you like. It was only available through certain channels. And so we didn't always have to learn how to critically evaluate information because we were sort of told to just trust it. We trusted authority. And if this information comes from a, a, a trustable source, then, you know, it's good. Now we're in a world where information has been completely opened up. And you talked about social media being a powerful tool for bypassing these channels, but it, and it is, but it's also a double-edged sword because it also allows not information, anti-information. Um, the, and I, I just don't think our societies are, are ready to, to cope with it, basically, because we still have this trusting element. If this information came from a Facebook page that I like or something, then I will trust it. So we have this world now where people have hugely more information than we've ever had before. We're constantly being bombarded with it. Um, but that information is of varying quality. There is some information that's, that um, is much more important, that is hugely important, we never had access to before. But there is also information that 
makes us dumber that's out there and that makes us believe stuff that's not true. The problem is we haven't been systematically equipped with the skills to evaluate it. You know, we need to think whenever we see a piece of information, we need to think where does this information come from? What is the agenda of the group um, sharing this information? Is there a risk that this information might be being used to manipulate me or whatever? Um, so I, I think I think these critical thinking skills are, are hugely important and I think they should be introduced. Yeah, they should be taught formally in our formal education systems. That's not enough, of course, because we are all we're lifelong learners now. We don't stop learning at school. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. I'm not it's not something I've thought hugely about and I don't know how I go about implementing it. But yeah, critical thinking training is or just, you know, um, general warning signs. If, if yeah, people need to be more broadly aware that not everything can be taken at face value. And we we talk about that a lot. Um, Sam and I have big conversations about this. We've talked about it a lot on the show about how we introduce um, critical thinking into the curriculum is actually a fundamental skill that our kids learn so that the information that they're presented with, they actually have got the skills to sit down and think, oh, where, where is this coming from? Like you say, um, this week I sat with my son who's 12 and my friend who's in her 40s doing her master's degree and gave them both the same information about something they got off Wikipedia, which is, that's great you found that on Wikipedia. Where did it come from before it was there? And that, you know, for so we're teaching that, I think, to our children, but it's the adults that are, I think, the most vulnerable. Absolutely, absolutely. One of, um, so the, the great thing about young people, the great thing about their approach to, um, to learning is a sort of an openness and how to phrase this um that they, they lack a sort of arrogance almost when we're when we're a bit older we we we're quite fully formed people we're, we're less open to being shaped because we think we're whole already um but with that can come a sort of arrogance uh, particularly um unfortunately if, if if you're male um and Quite often we have a, a sort of overconfidence in in what we know. We 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 think we're right, and that that can make us less open to hearing um, the voices of others, hearing new information, but not just new information. Importantly, hearing new different points of view. And you know this is really important because we have our you know the more that our um, views are shaped by. Um, you know, sensual influences, media, for example, um, the more our the world sort of coalesces around certain certain views. And, you know, that means that we end up being dominated by the views of wealthy white men from industrialized nations. Um, and not only is that actually a minority view, it's a dangerous view because it doesn't represent the, the 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 views of of the majority world. We're seeing this. Um, interestingly, we're, we're we're seeing this um, this transition in conservation science in my field. We've always felt that um, you know conservation policies should be determined by what the science dictates. Over recent decades, we're increasingly 
um, becoming open to the voices of others, particularly other people with different forms of knowledge that are very valuable in understanding the relationships between people and nature. Indigenous people, for example, have very um, different knowledge, knowledge systems. Often um, these have been perceived as clashing with, with, with science, but um, they're not necessarily clashing, they're just different. And um, of course, there's a lot we can learn from there. But And just in general, the more different viewpoints we can bring together when forming our views and making our decisions, the better the decisions will be because we've taken on board more information. We've, we've considered more different things. So we make better decisions and also more socially acceptable decisions. So being, yeah, Opening ourselves up to a diversity of voices is, is, is hugely important. Sorry, I think I've strayed very far from your original question. <laughs> it was a really good stray. I'm not worried. <laughs> Let's squeeze in the second of your music choices. Midnight Oil, Beds Are Burning. Why this one? Well, um, I actually just came across this song for the first time a couple of months ago, listening to uh, a random 80s playlist. And it was really exciting because... It was one of those tunes that I hadn't heard since I was a little kid and it was just lying there, you know, 99% forgotten at the back of my mind. And just uh, as soon as I heard those opening bars, it just all came back and um, I was quite excited to hear it. It's not actually a song about climate change, but the symbolism is there. So let's go for that one. River broke the bloodwood and the desert oak, holding wrecks and boiling diesels, steam and forty-five degrees. The time has come to say farewell to pay the rent to pay our share.
Sally, we've seen lots of change over the last couple of years, change in society. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? So the most exciting thing for me, actually, was seeing how society responded, both at the governmental level and at the individual level, at the start of the pandemic. So it's all changed now. But at the beginning, everybody was coming together. Our instinct was to look after each other and do the right thing. And our governments did extraordinary things. In the UK, governments paid people's wages for months. Everyone was happy to to be locked down. And that showed me the power of society to change when we treat an emergency as an emergency. So that was hugely hopeful for me. Um, Looking forward in this climate and ecological crisis, once we grasp how much of an emergency it is, I think we have this wonderful example of what individuals and governments can do. Um, And we we need to remember that because it was powerful. Is that the biggest lesson from the pandemic for those bigger sorts of things, climate change, biodiversity collapse, systemic racism, is to have them seen as as emergencies? Absolutely, I think it is. But there are two lessons here. One is the one I talked about, how we instinctively reacted. The second one is how... Um, how capitalists essentially have pushed back against that to um, to try and open up the economy and move and go back to normal, as they say. And I think this is worth remembering, too, because there's been the, the pushback has been very powerful in this country. They have persuaded people that wearing a mask is a bad thing because it's too much hassle and it's too much of an infringement on your personal liberty. Um, and so I think it's been a stark um, illustration of people's instincts to do the right thing in the first place, but then how strongly people can be manipulated to go against their instincts and and to you know, act in ways that are bad for society. And I think we need to be equally aware of both sides of this phenomenon. The the you know the the intrinsic phenomenon that just happened, and then the pushback by those that wants to just get the economy to to, to how it was before. So I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time. So we're going to have to wriggle. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? I think it has been reaching a lot of people, both as as an individual climate communicator and as a member of my group, Scientist Rebellion. We have both um, exploded in terms of our reach and a lot of people are are, are reaching, are, are receiving our message now. And this is hugely important because I think it all comes down to social tipping points. We need to build a critical mass of people that are going to take back our world from those that will destroy it for profit. And I think just so we're in a phase of massive momentum building now. We need to build a huge body of people. And so that's what I'm focusing on. And I, th- I think we're, we're making progress. I think a big part of it's going to happen as the, the kids get a bit older. The, the, the kids that went on the climate strikes are, are at university now. That's, that's yes. coming through. It, 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 it is hugely um, hopeful to me to, to, to see this um, generational shift. And you're right. And that is having an impact. Unfortunately, it's still going to be 20 years until they are in leadership positions of corporations and, and in government. And we cannot wait until they are our leaders. So we all need to um, you know, pull together, get up off our feet and act like it's an emergency now.
We are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. You are in that team. What's your superpower? What's got you into the mansion? Oh, blimey. Um, my, oh, oh, my superpower is not being scared to, um, to look ahead and not being scared to, 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 to say it as I see it because it, it, that's important i think lots of us are uh, you know it's taboo it's taboo to think about these things it's taboo to think about awful futures but if we just keep our heads down and focus on on what we have to do this morning then we're not going to get out of it are you seeing a positive future i have yeah i told you before i've been you know fully aware of our environmental crisis since i was six years old i have never had any hope until these last few years and i'm despite the fact that crises are getting rapidly worse i am more hopeful now than i've ever been because our response is building too we're not going to get out of this until everybody is acting to take our world back and we're a lot closer to that now than we were three years ago when everyone was just apathetic and sleepwalking into disaster so i'm not hugely hopeful but i'm more hopeful than i've ever been and you know it's in the end it's not about whether you're hopeful or not it's about whether you're active or passive and more people are becoming active okay so the easiest question in the world do you consider yourself to be an activist absolutely absolutely it is the only thing to be in an emergency so what motivates you what gets you out of bed in the morning um different things actually different things when i first started going into conservationist into conservation i just loved the natural world i just was interested in saving other species and beautiful wild places as i grew older i became a bit less misanthropic and i um, was more motivated by doing it for other people as i've learned more about climate change and how imminent disaster is i have to admit and it sounds awful to say it, but self-defense has become a, 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 an increasing motivation for me on top of those other motivations i still act for other species but you know things are going to get very very bad we're talking about the uh, the risk of the collapse of civilization and i really really don't want to see that if i can act now to make sure that happens well after my lifetimes and well after my nephew's lifetimes then that's a big win. So, so I, yeah, I act for other species, I act for other people, and, and I act in, in self-defense to just try and delay the worst for as long as we can. Those other species are a useful device for us, those charismatic megafauna. The, 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 the most obvious image of climate change is the polar bear on the ice floe. Are you able to use that kind of connection, or is, is it beyond that? Is it a, we've just got to do something now? Maybe everyone gets that. I, th I think we've moved a bit beyond that. I think the problem with um, trying to persuade people to act for other species is that, you know, they seem like a bonus. They're a nice optional extra. Um, we all like them, but it's difficult to persuade people to put their money where their mouth is for, for you know, what is ultimately an altruistic quest to do for something else. And I think whilst there has been some um, power in marketing conservation about other species, fundamentally, saving forests, saving functioning ecosystems is about saving ourselves. We cannot survive on Earth without functioning ecosystems. And I wonder if it's 
um, in you know, hindsight is 2020. But I wonder if this has been a mistake by saying to people, we're doing this for the polar bears rather than we're doing this for our own survival. Because ultimately, I wonder if, um, and it's sad to say, but um, self-concern is more powerful than, than altruism. What is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or two? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think it is it's capitalizing on the flowering of public concern over our planet that we're seeing over recent years. So, you know, um, recent polling in January showed that, that climate change and the environment is the number one concern for British voters. It's never been this way, but they're more concerned about the environment than they are about Brexit, um, NHS, COVID, the economy, any of it. So I think there is um, there's growing concern. I think there are a lot of people out there that want to act but don't quite know what they can do and there's a feeling of of powerlessness people want to do something but don't sense their own agency and don't quite know how they can direct their efforts into something useful so this then is a huge opportunity for the the climate movement um but also a responsibility we need to empower people that are now motivated because motivation is not enough without a useful something to apply it to so so we need to reach those that are concerned and um and turn that concern into action by providing tools and and that's a really exciting opportunity you know it's what could be more exciting than saving the entire flipping world like wow what an opportunity and lastly do you have any advice for our listeners um yeah, I, I think, you know, th- this is, we're in really difficult times. We've never had more bad news bombarding us. And of course, that affects us. You know, lots of people are suffering. We do, we are anxious about what's coming. We are in grief about what's being lost. And these are, of course, perfectly normal, rational reactions. You're not a weirdo for being scared by what's coming. You should be scared. Um, but the best thing to do, you know, I've been paralyzed by these emotions myself. Honestly, the for me, the best thing to do is something. Just do something. Get active. Join a group. Find a group that fits with your vibe and what you want to do and just act. Because a big part of why we feel rubbish about these things is the sense of powerlessness. But doing something, becoming an active agent, um, it helps you take back some sense of control and it makes you feel like you're doing something. And honestly, I think I think the, my big fear for the future is that I lie there in bed going, oh, I wish I'd done more. And I hate the fact, I hate the idea that there might be people out there that will be in that situation. I wish I'd done more. Um, the best thing we can do for ourselves, let alone for the planet, is to just get active and get involved. And I'd encourage you to do it. It's transformed my life. I'm... I'm I'm happier and fuller now than I was three years ago, and it, it's a great thing. Thank you for that. Moera. Charlie, I'm going to read the quote that I first found of yours on Twitter. We have a mental health crisis because people feel they lack meaning and purpose in their lives and a planetary emergency that needs everyone to engage to literally save the world. I wish we could connect these better. 
and here you are doing exactly that. And I'll tell you what, um, just, you know, from the other side of the world, reading through all your stuff, the challenge that you put out there about do something, I bought a bike. So you can, you can put that as a tick in your another success column, I bought a Wonderful. bike. It's Wonderful. So good I'm so to pleased to hear it. Um, just if, if, if you'll forgive me just for, for a second, um, buying a bike is a really nice example because whilst it's great for the climate, it's also good for your health. It's good for your mental health and good for other things. Um, and this is, you know, we see the same thing with all our climate actions. Everything we need to do for the climate also makes society much better in other ways. So whilst we're acting to, to, to reduce our emissions, we're also making better, happier, more stable communities and societies. And it's just, you know, there are so many reasons to do this. Well, Tali, you inspired me, and I bet that there are a lot of people around the world who are inspired by your kōrero or your conversation. We appreciate you. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been such an honour. Thank you. And thank you for all your efforts with your podcast and interviewing people. Um, what a wonderful resource you've created. Thank you. with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is the specials Ghost Town. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and in Norfolk in the UK, we've been joined by Charlie Gardner. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Marty Wa.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.